Hello everybody, I'm Aaron White. I'm teaching elder at uh, South Charleston, Ohio, near Columbus. Oh, I need my recording device. All right, and um, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about evangelism in the early church. Let's move on. So I like just for my own uh, moment of thinking, just like when I start talking about a word or a or a concept, I just want to just take a moment to think about, like, where did, where did this all come from? Uh, if I had the right, you know, understanding of technology, I was actually going to start my presentation out with shares. If I could turn back time, if I could find a way, I'd take back those words that hurt you, and I'd say, right? Um, because that's the whole thing about words and whatnot. It's a lot like if you've been to the Holy Lands and you've seen a tell, you know, those big piles of dirt, or if you've watched the Discovery Channel, where they look at the cities below the ancient cities. That's really like what we do very often with our words and our concepts. It's like a thing built upon a thing. Upon, or if you're like pastoring or eldering at a you know local church where you have the, the rummage sale and this uh, program and that thing and the bake sale and the annual meeting dinner. You know, it's the, we just pile things on top of things. And so it's good to take a moment and maybe deconstruct a little bit. So. Uh, I do this just as a, as a thought experiment. Uh, what is evangelical? I kind of thought about it as I, before I jumped into the data of the New Testament. I was like, well, you know, we could think about it as the five solas, which I really like. You know, if we want to get back to the Reformation, we think about the five solas, maybe the second great awakening and, and the positive and negative impacts it's had on the church, especially in America. Maybe the parachurch boom of the 60s, NAVs, maybe Crusade, IV. Uh, young Life, and so on. Um, maybe in the moral majority, maybe in the mega church boom, Christian music industry and church growth movement, things like that. A lot of these things, if you're asking just your average Joe Evangelical, what, what, what are thoughts that come up with? Uh, there we might arrive uh, as, as um, kind of definitions in their mind or pictures. Um, and then equally, I want to ask, what is evangelism? And so if I was to ask people what evangelism is, and in fairness, as you see, one of these uh, categories I have is our own church newsletter. If you scroll, 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 scroll to the bottom, you'll have this bit of how do I become a Christian? We actually have five steps. We go one step further than Bill Bright. Um, I was on staff with crew, I, you know, it was all good. But we might come up with the bridge, the four laws, evangelism explosion, which I, I personally still use in Kennedy questions. I've, you know, they're maybe incomplete, but they at least get me to a certain point in, in the right context. If I really want to know, I was talking to a 14-year-old who's a best buddy of my friend who's expressed a, a desire to be baptized and was, praise God, on, on Sunday. And he does not have an earthly father, but now he has a heavenly father who has adopted him. And I just asked him, Chris, on a scale from zero to 10, how sure you'd go to heaven if you died tonight? And he did the whole normal thing, hemmed and hawed, ah, seven or eight, and then we get to talk about the gospel, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, a little bit. But then you might have Romans Road and so on. So what is evangelism? We might come up with methods if somebody wants to ask us, right? Um, if you were to go ask, you know, 10 people in your church, you might come up with uh, versions of this. 
so, but what is uh, uh, our topic of focus? I, I want to say it's evangelism in the early church, and that, that's what I'm kind of doing. I'm, uh, we're going to look at, and I'll show you this in a second, at Luke Acts. Uh, that, that's my area of expertise, but uh, really you get a very uh, clear historical account from uh, the author, Luke. And, and I'm actually going to, unlike Scott's presentation, I am going to anchor us to a word. I'm going to offend the rule that my preaching mentor, Brian Chapel gave me of showing my my homework, but I'm not preaching this morning, so uh, we can get rid of that. I will be using some uh, original language, so that's okay. This word we're going to get used to hearing, euangelizomai, which is the verb form of, well, we're going to find that out because it's actually translated in numerous different ways, actually, as we'll see in Acts 8. It appears numerous times just in that chapter, and it's actually translated several different ways in that chapter. So there's a content question there of what is the content of this Black Tidings Good News message. So we're going to uh, anchor ourselves to that word. So uh, what I want to say kind of as a... As a um, I don't know, just before I get into anything, this, this was a study that I was already kind of poised to jump into. Much of my academic research has been based in Acts and also the speeches in Acts. My dissertation and uh, research uh, was in the Minor Prophets in Acts, which all the Minor Prophets quotations are in speeches. I've also done a couple of previous presentations here on the grammar of church in Acts. So when we talk about the, the church in the earliest documents, uh, of the church, what, what, what are we talking about? What its content uh, might be? And then I also did some research on sermons, I called them in Acts, uh, certain speeches that actually look a lot like uh, propositional sermons in some way. So this is actually the next kind of foray, which actually lined up pretty well with our uh, GA theme uh, this year. My interest shifts to the Euangelizomai, which looks to stand for some kind of shorthand for speeches in Acts especially, but we're actually going to look at it a little more broadly just to get a better context. I'm aware, actually, and many of you guys are, because many of you or um, some of you might have read this book in seminary and others for, uh, for general interest is Michael Green's Evangelism in the Early Church. It's kind of pure to force of, of just a, a wonderful, I mean, it's a thick book, and then I'm actually about a third of the way through Gospel Witness Through the Ages that just came out by David Gustafson uh, reviewing this for a journal, so I need to hurry up a little bit. But there are some great larger studies on how the kingdom of God was proclaimed throughout the world in the early church, and these are a couple that came to mind. There's there's many others, of course, but I just wanted to give proper credit that I'm not the first to think of this, of course. So uh, what I want to say is, like, so if you're going to study something, well, why is it interesting? Well, what intrigued me about this? And, and what I want to say on the first, uh, uh, I guess the first step is, like, euangelion, Christian scripture uh, takes a word that was used sparingly. Euangelion was very, used very sparingly. Euangelizomine um, was used actually with a very broad, as, as Scott said from Basak, a very broad application, right? It became more specific by its use. Uh, in prophetic literature and then New Testament literature as well. It takes this uh, word uh, in, in Old Testament, early Jewish literature and Greco-Roman literature and really popularizes its, uh, its meaning. And so uh, it's uh, kind of a neat thing to look at. Additionally, it occurs most often in Luke Acts. It's a thematic word, and I'll talk about what I mean by thematic word here in a second, especially in Acts 8. 
and what Philip is called in Acts 21. So Philip uh, appears in Acts 6 at the uh, invention of the diaconate, and then we see his, uh, his ministry in Acts 8, and then he pops up 24 years later in Acts 21, and the only time this word is used in Luke-Acts, he is called, what, the evangelist. And he has four prophet daughters, and it just sounds like a chaotic prophetic craziness around there. I mean, a guy tying himself up with a belt. Uh, I don't know if you guys, I just preached on this the other week. A guy tying himself up with a belt, talking about, uh, with Paul's belt, actually, and saying, the man whose belt this is uh, will be tied up like this in Jerusalem and sent over to the hands of the pagans. And one of my... Uh, congregation members came up after that sermon and said, really what Paul should have said, it's not my belt, it's Luke's. No. Um, but uh, anyhow, uh, you know, Philip the Evangelist is there. Uh, it's a thematic word. Uh, it's rooted, as uh, Scott has pointed out, in Isaiah 61. We're going to touch on this a- in a moment, but uh, here is that passage, and I'll, I'll read it in full here in, uh, a bit, but it's from the first sermon, we could say, of Jesus in Luke so it holds a very kind of a propositional or, or thesis uh, role in Luke Acts itself. Uh, as a rule, as I'm looking at this broadly from start to finish, as a rule, it's in, remember, rules have exceptions. That's what makes rules. Rules is like language, right? Um, as a rule, Luke seems to limit his use uh, of euangelizomai and acts to speeches that are recorded without content. Now, uh, again, I've, I've given a presentation before where I, I studied all of these speeches and acts that actually were laden in content, had a lot of scripture that was quoted in there. But it's actually the occasions where Luke uh, merely wants to report that the gospel was preached. Remember, papyrus was very expensive at the time. Uh, so, so Luke uh, summarizes uh, these speeches in good faith. So uh, these are unrecorded speeches where people proclaim the kingdom or the word of God or the good news or the divine tidings, however it might work within the context. It appears that this term is shorthand for something. Uh, it's kind of a standardish message. I. Howard Marshall actually says uh, that the, the meaning itself of this word may lie in the context rather than the verb itself. And Fitzmaier, who you'll see emerge a few more times in my presentation, is very helpful here when we're thinking through you and get leads in mind, says that something similar, uh, says something similar about this as Luke never explains it regarding the content of this message. It's actually, there's there's kind of a presumed understanding that we would have of what this message is, and we'll start to unpack what that background might have been. So why why this verb, viewing my particularly, and how does it relate to other speaking words? Essentially, I want to say, as we were talking about before presentation started, we all, when we start talking about words, D.A. Carson and his exegetical fallacies book comes to mind. You're like, I don't want to, I don't want to bend that, fall-. you know, I don't want to do that fallacy. I don't want to be that guy. Um, so we don't want to commit any fallacies. I'll probably do it anyway. So why euangelizomai alone? Well, there's a lot of words in, especially Luke Acts, for speaking things, you know, moments. You have didaskin where you're really talking about uh, teaching. Um, you know, that's where we get like didactic and so on. Curitzain, where we get like kerygma, this idea of, a, of the content and the action of speaking itself. It's hard to define because really higher critical theories took this and ran with it in a lot of different directions, but it's to proclaim or to herald. Lalain, a very general word to say, sometimes 
uh, for Luke, it is used for prophetic utterance. And then finally, we have euangelizomai, which is a particular speech that happens that is proclaiming, again, this general understanding of good news and good tidings that we'll unpack as we uh, go along. So for us, the question concerns, and, and really that's what we're going to be doing, is, is leading ourselves with some data from the early church, uh, what the questions are that we should be asking. I, I don't know if I'm really going to arrive at some clear and crystallized answers, but I, I at least want to throw out that this is a very complex thing that we're entering into. Uh, and, and so it should lead us into questions. So a question concerns the content of the message of good news and tidings for us today. All right. Let's look at the outline going forward. And as, as God did, I think at this point, I think we should stop and pray because there is a lot coming at us here. Father, the good news is yours that you have sovereignly given us. You do this now by the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And your Holy Spirit will lead us this morning. As you promised, we are gathered here. And we pray that your Spirit would do all of this empowering us encouraging and exhorting us. Uh, Lord, we pray for that in this time. Amen. So outline going forward. So uh, I want to look at Ewing Gilead's and my prophesied, so kind of its Old Testament background, where are we coming from, and, and Scott hit on many of these points, and so we'll, we'll kind of go back to that a little bit. But then I want to talk about pagan euangelizomai, because this was a word that was being used in the Greco-Roman setting for particular reasons. Uh, then I call it euangelizomai obscured. There's kind of this early Jewish time that we often call like Second Temple. It's, it's the several hundred years between uh, prophecy and the arrival of Christ and what's going on there. Um, and so we'll briefly touch on that. Uh, then Jesus is the Euangelizomai in the New Testament. And finally, we'll take a closer work, a look at the meat of this presentation, the early church according to Luke Acts. So the Old Testament background. Um, basar is kind of the word that we're coming out of. Generally means proclaiming the good news. We see this in 1 Kings 1, uh, 1 Samuel uh, 4, and there's many other situations. Very broad term. I mean, this is where I'm sitting there listening to Scott saying, yes, it's very broad. wasn't too helpful. You're filtering through all these occurrences of this, but it gains more traction in the prophetic books, especially uh, 52.7 and 61.1. Uh, 52.7 uh, that we'll go to here first. Sounds uh, familiar to many of you. Maybe you've read Romans 10 here recently. Uh, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of whom, him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns the voice of your watchmen. They lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing. And then, of course, arising out of Luke 4 is Isaiah 61.1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. 
So it gains a little more clarity there, and um, pardon the expressions here, I'm gonna say Deutero Isaiah, don't throw a shoe at me, okay, it's just, this is a direct quote. Um, but Gerhard Friedrich uh, is kind of talking about what's going on here when we're looking at these, uh, these prophetic books, and he says, most significantly for an understanding of the New Testament concept of euangelion is Deutero Isaiah, or Isaiah, if that bothers you, uh, in the literature influenced by it. Psalm 40 and 68 speak only of the isolated acts of Yahweh, which are to be declared. Whereas in Isaiah, however, uh, it expects of the great victory of Yahweh, his ascension, his kingly rule, the dawn of the new age. So this is, this is a, a very robust meaning and very much the content of which we see Jesus proclaiming and actually as we see before that, his forerunner, John the Baptist. He continues here, he says, in Isaiah, Yahweh is a God of Gentiles as well as Israel. The message of Yahweh's acts of power now goes out to the whole world. Daily, the glad tidings are to ring out among the heathen. Okay, so uh, what we see here in summary is the result of this very brief look at the Old Testament and its prophetic uh, setting up of what this word might mean is that the background of uh, the background of the proclamation of the rule and victory of Adonai over the whole world, over the whole world, not just a sliver of land like I said in my congregation, not just a sliver of land the size of uh, Rhode Island, but the, the entire world becomes his land. That is the uh, projection in the prophecy. So, uh, pagan euangelizomai, this is attested, this word is attested all the way back to the, the very well-known and great satirical uh, uh, poet Aristophanes. Uh, he talked about uh, this this glad tidings, uh, and, and very generally in this setting, it's much akin to the general use seen in the Old Testament of the proclamation of news of victory. So, again, a very generic term. I, I, I like this, though, uh, in its use, it's sent in a letter by a ship or a horse from battle. I've just been preaching through Paul's uh, shipwreck and him and then him going by ship, uh, bringing the euangelides of I, euangelion, uh, that proclamation from town to town. So this is uh, by a letter, by ship or horse from battle. Oftentimes, the euangelides of I does not correspond with the facts, but is meant to boost Morale, maybe where we kind of see a difference here. Um, it's meant, it's more of kind of, I don't know, marketing or some type of a locker room talk or something of the sort. Um, so news came to, in light of that, uh, Friedrich says, news came to be treated with suspicion and the term loses its value. So it actually gets watered down, whereas the, the direction of the, the prophecy of the Old Testament, New Testament comes the other direction. So that it can be uh, uh, consciously used in ironical conversions, or sometimes it would be used ironically. Uh, however, there are many in intersections with the New Testament in Greek literature in that New England my concerns liberation from enemies and deliverance from demonic powers which frighten men. So that idea of judgment being good news, right? We just heard about that judgment being good news, liberation from oppression. So we do see that in that background. This is where things get a little weird here as we're looking at the early Jew Jewish background and that can stretch from kind of the end of, of prophecy entering the land to even through the uh, the first century through Jesus' setting and the, the apostles. So it's, it's kind of a, a bit of a gray space 
Um, but early Jewish writings do not really help us much, and the Septuagint, uh, in its various uh, translations, because remember, if we're talking about the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, uh, that translation isn't one translation done by one committee, all right? That might be the first five books of this. By the way, this is not at all about my presentation. This is just an aside, so we can use this term correctly. Uh, so the Pentateuch, you know, the first five books might have been done by more of a committee or something, and there's even questions about that. And then afterwards, books were added, and even after the whole, as we call it, Old Testament uh, was translated in Greek, it was already, like, in revision, so it's... And, you know, when you have, if you guys have that little blue volume, Ralphs and Hanhart, uh, that's not how Jesus was reading uh, the Old Testament. Uh, I know that sounds silly to say it, but I just say it out loud just so we remember that. It, was, it didn't come in a book. Um, but, uh, so when we look at the Septuagint, it's translating words in a lot of different ways according to a lot of different contexts. Uh, much like you're going to preach one sermon in one setting and very different, I hope, uh, in, a, in a different, you know, setting, right? So we, we think that contextual. It's using this word, though, actually rather consistently. So we're not actually gaining a whole lot of meaning when we're looking here. Friedrich actually says this. He says the result, this feels a little heavy-handed, but he says the result for the New Testament is quite negative from the setting, yet the inquiry is not superfluous uh, since it helps us to see how Jewish writers think and speak under the influence of Hellenism. So he's saying that actually the Jewish thinkers of the time were being influenced by the Greeks and the way they thought of the proclamation of good news. Uh, the New Testament maintained its independence from Hellenism, Greek thought. However, there is some tension here because Marshall, uh, I have Marshall, again, looking at Stuhlmacher says this, but I think he's actually talking about Palestinian Ju Judaism, which would be a little bit different than what I think Friedrich is looking at. He says, as to the origin of the word, despite the use in Hellenism, which in some respects comes close to that of the New Testament, Stuhlmacher concludes that the Jewish influence is primary. So you kind of have two different opinions there. So, so there's but essentially why I put that out there is we can't say, well, the Jewish people of Jesus' time would have said, you ain't going to lead to my, or the good news is this. Like that type of assertion is really hard to make because we see that even in modern current day scholarship, the best scholarship, we're really unsettled on what's really going on. And just so that's the takeaway. If, you, if all the rest of that just went like that, that's fine. Just the takeaway is don't say things like Jewish thinkers around Jesus's time would have said this. Um, I, I hear that from the pulpit uh, from time to time if I'm listening to other sermons. And that's where showing your homework it can be detrimental to what people think about your thinking. Um, or you can lead people astray. So uh, be careful. Uh, Jesus is the euangelitimai in the New Testament. So this is kind of the billboard and then we'll get into it. For some, the use of evangelizomai is thematic. That's the reason it does not appear in John's writings, the Gospel of Mark, and only once in Matthew. However, it appears 10 times in Luke's Gospel and 11 times if you look at this particular manuscript, uh, and 15 times in Acts, and if you look at uh, D. Corrector, that, well, let me tell you what that is. So you, there's a lot of manuscripts behind your New Testament and your Old Testament, a lot less behind your Old Testament, but a lot behind your New Testament, which actually gives us great assurance that we have what's supposed to be there. Uh, occasionally, a scribe would go back in and, and actually write in a word in the, in the margin. And so, so when you see something like D with an asterisk, 
Um, that's not like the same asterisk they've used for like Barry Bonds or something. Um, this would be, uh, this would, sorry. Maybe, maybe I'm too old. Is that an old reference now? Um, I lived through the McGuire Bonds. Like, that was exciting. I don't care if they're juicing. It was, it was fun TV. I mean, that's all. Nobody watches baseball anymore. Oh, okay. Don't throw a shoe. You're too far back. Um, anyhow, so sometimes they would go through and correct things. So you get a little asterisk and say, in the original, this wouldn't be here. But um, then they added it. In Mark, the abs continue. In Mark, the absence of the verb is with reference to the messianic secret, one would suggest. And for John's gospel, it reflects the calm of fulfillment, or as some would say, the supposed realized eschatology. So, really, that's why we want to actually cast our gaze more at Euangelizomai and Luke Acts, all right? So that's why we find ourselves here. And there's actually three stages. And this is where we really want to take our lead here. So there's three stages of Euangelizomai picking up from the prophetic stage, because John the Baptist is of the prophetic era still. And so Euangelizomai in John the Baptist is that it's imminently arriving and yet received. And that yet received I'm going to talk about because that actually happened pretty late in the gospel, or I'm sorry, and uh, I, I keep uh, wanting to call Acts the gospel of the Holy Spirit. The gospel of the Holy Spirit. Um, Acts, it happens actually pretty late in Acts. Then you have Jesus, you and Gilead to my arrive, and then you have the disciples, you and Gilead to my extending, or restoration. By the way, Scott and I did not share notes before this, it's just... Just what the Bible says here. Um, all right. You ain't get leads to my imminently arriving. John straddles the prophecy and arrival and points to the imminent arrival of God's kingdom. So we see this right away as uh, we start and open up the pages of Luke's gospel. It says, and he will go before him, Jesus, in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared, a halas, God's people. A people, and, and look at it, this people, oddly and awkwardly and maybe offensively, includes ha-ethne, the Gentiles, okay? Uh, this is very interesting. The, the, uh, the angel answered, now this is after, uh, she's like, wait, wait, what are you talking about? How is this possible? The angel answers, I am Gabriel, uh, full stop. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent here to speak to you and to bring you this good news. So that is the good news of the imminent arrival. And then continuing, as we see later in uh, the Gospel of Luke, is Luke 16 says this. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So John's role was to point to the imminent arrival of his kingdom. Here we have, it says, John is called and set apart to go before the Eungelizomai and to give knowledge of the visitation of God's kingdom, which we uh, see um, in a second. But I want to talk about this uh, imminently arriving beyond here. Hold on a second. Here in Acts 18, um, we, we encounter this kind of awkward moment with Apollos. Uh, if you guys can uh, 
call that back to memory, but this is Acts 18, uh, where it says, even after the extension of the euangelism, even the disciples are taking this message out, uh, even after this has ensued, some were still caught in the transition. This is what we see in 18. So it says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, confident in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard them, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he had wished to cross to Achaia, uh, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, uh, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had delayed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So we see there, even with Apollos, he's kind of caught up in that early bit of the, the arrival. He had only heard of the preaching of John, and that the Spirit had not yet come on it, kind of that almost personal Pentecost in some ways. I don't want to take that to its length, but that had not reached him there. All right, Jesus is the euangelizomai arrived. As some scholars observe this, in uh, that early Christian charisma, that is their speech, their proclamation, Jesus uh, was not only a teacher or a prophet announcing the act of salvation, but also the one who formerly had been the bearer of the message, but who was now and drawn into it and became its essential content. I like this. The proclaimer became the proclaimed. It's a, he is proclaiming the kingdom, but he is the kingdom. Okay, uh, there is that reality happening here. In eight occasions, Jesus speaks the euangelism. He does it in various ways, but always of God's kingdom arriving and its implications, which uh, leads Fitzmaier to say this, and I love this, it's really helpful. Um, uh, there is, moreover, a sense in which the Lucan Jesus speaks of the imminence of the kingdom, and he does this in three ways. Uh, realize that the kingdom of God is near, Yet he does not hesitate to speak up, uh, speak up its presence in his own person and acts. The kingdom of God is among you. Furthermore, he can also speak of certain things being fulfilled in the coming kingdom. All right. So, so there's a whole lot going on. It's near, it's here, and it's coming is, is Jesus' message. Instead of taking you through all the occurrences that this happened, that is the general understanding of how uh, Jesus maps this out. Uh, the last aspect points to our final point, which gives greater clarity to the movement of God's kingdom. All right, Friedrich observes this. Already during the lifetime of Jesus uh, and the twelve go out through the land, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal, proclaiming the kingdom of God and working signs like Jesus himself, even if the missionary activity of the apostles begin at Pentecost. You see that there's always kind of a segue. There's, a, there's always a transition point. Even in Luke 9, there's this transition point when the disciples begin to proclaim that good news. They take it out even uh, before Jesus has sent them in Acts 1-8. So here we are. Uh, the disciples, you and Gelly's my extending. This is our, our final point here. It says, if this is a, I, I've noticed that this is actually a scene first and actually most occurs in Acts 8. And the way that I discovered this was my, my uh, youth director was giving a sermon on Acts 8. And it's always the ones that you farm out to somebody else you actually wish that you were preaching. Uh, 
I know you're Presbyterian, but I see some amens out there. Um, yes, because you're sitting there like, oh. And so I kept saying this word to preach, to preach. And I, I said, Chris, you know, this might be a great opportunity to unpack what it means to preach the gospel. And as I as I started just myself, I went up to my Lagos program and I started fishing through all the, the different resources. I'm like, oh my gosh, this happened so much in Acts 8. Well, what's significant about Acts 8? says it right there, uh, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Why were they scattered? The persecution of the church was finally unleashed. Finally, uh, the Jewish leaders didn't care. And because they didn't care because the crowd no longer was really protecting the church as they once were. And he was introduced at that moment. Saul. Saul, the apostle to the nations, the one who proclaimed to the nations, which we'll talk about in a minute. Then again, in Acts 8, 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women, and presumably four times in Acts, their household. Then again, in Acts 8, 25. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the, good, or preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So it's being scattered, it's going out, it's extending. That's what you need to be seeing here. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told them the good news. See how it's translated there differently? This is from ESV. Uh, it's translated differently each time, which uh, I'm kind of a consistency guy, so when I see this, I, 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 it raises some flags to me, but that's what made this interesting. They proclaimed the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see here, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And then finally, but Philip found himself as Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So you start to see why Philip was called the evangelist. Uh, but you see that the, the scattering immediately in the nations in Acts 8 happens this way. Ewing Gelitzimai appears first in Acts 8 because it is the first extension of Ewing Gelitzimai to the nations, and then appears nine more times among the nations thereafter. The objects, uh, as Fitzmaier observed, of the disciples' char charismatic, remember their proclamation, their preaching, are not solely the kingdom of the word of God, but the, the content that really starts to emerge is that it's about Jesus himself, especially as the crucified, risen, and exalted Messiah and Lord, who is present to his followers through his spirit. The relation of Jesus Christ to the kingdom is succinctly presented by Luke at the very end of Acts. Paul, though in house arrest, preached the kingdom of God and taught openly and unhindered about the Lord Jesus Christ. The mention of the two objects of preaching activity is based on Jesus, his own proclamation about himself and the kingdom. Uh, Luke emphasizes these points, spelling out in his own way what Mark 10 implies, in particular, 1120 preaching the Lord Jesus. And that is important to highlight, because if there isn't one area that's uh, very much, I mean, that's so much like uh, the rest of Luke Acts, it's Galatians. Galatians has this word uh, straight on through it, and this was actually the focus of my study in this book. And this is a subtle advertisement. Go out and um, buy my book. Um, I have kids to feed. Buy crazy my book. So, no, there we go. But actually, in there, I, I look at Euangelion. Uh, I've been saying Euangelizomai so much. Euangelion in Paul's letters about my gospel, our gospel. And Paul becomes a prophet who proclaims the, uh, the kingdom of God. And what does he proclaim about it? Well, he 
claims about it what Jesus had proclaimed about it. He is saying the same thing uh, that Jesus was saying and about Jesus himself. So he's not just, just saying Jesus' words, but he's preaching the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed and him, his work himself. So uh, he is the evangelist to the Gentiles. That is, it's, it's extending to the nations through Paul, which is very instrumental in being that it first comes up when he appears on the scene and then runs throughout Acts. The message is first taken to the Jews, but then also to the Greeks. Paul becomes the evangelist of the Gentiles. He is also called to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Um, pardon me, that should say Galatians 1.16. So what then is Evangelism? As we, we start to wrap up here. First, it's the reality of God's visitation through the person of Jesus. It's the coming of God's kingdom through the person of Jesus. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's the implications of all of the above, if we are to boil it down to several different things. So how is it that we observe that Eudelizomai is accomplished? Where is preaching? It's central. It's central. And as you notice, with the disciples, it's paired with certain things. Baptism of individuals and households occurs. Uh, we all can at times see in other areas of prayer, of eating with one another, communing with one another. How does this align with our current methods? Well, I mean, as you saw early on, I mean, there are very good uh, methods that I, I talked about when we were unpacking what evangelism is. I still use uh, many of them because I find them to be good tools. But I, I find that ordinary means preaching of God's word, administration of our two sacraments, and that is also the baptism of infants and of adult believers. Maybe this is a good public space to say uh, infant baptism isn't a non-essential. Um, so, yes, we should be baptizing infants and uh, adult believers. And we should also be gathered together in the community of believers and pray. So ordinary means. I mean, I, I, I guess I would just pause and say, I mean, so when I was brought into South Charleston, um, I could tell that I had a very biblically informed uh, um, congregation and leadership, and I was on the coattails of a pastor who had been there for a long time, had a wonderful ministry, and I just thought to myself, what would it be like to do the grand experiment? What would it be like to endorse my elders to be shepherds and to base our entire ministry on ordinary means? And and friends, I, I would report that, as my friend says, when you do ordinary means of grace ministry, your ministry either shrinks or it grows. And, and both are great. Uh, and, and we've been on the growth side of it. Uh, in fact, we uh, will add 20 new members a year, and we're a, about a 200-member church. Uh, that's 1.25% of our small farming community. I always liken that to our 90,000-person city. I'm like, well, if that was happening up there, that would be 1,000 members a year, just so you have a perspective on that. Ordinary means of grace ministry is hard to pin down. It can seem a little uh, just nebulous, but, but it's the way that God has endorsed the nutrition of his churches, is, as I've uh, decided to call it, his three square meals. Um, and uh, if we eat those, yes, we'll be nourished. And so we see that here as we see the proclamation. So how do we see euangelism might happen around us? Well, as we've noticed, it's really fundamentally contextual and situational. 
Uh, as, as I. Howard Marshall said, and uh, I quoted him in the original part of my presentation, that the meaning comes from, from the context in a, in a lot of senses. And, and we're really in these different uh, phases. And so the question we might ask, and maybe we can't answer today, is how can that help us? And how can it be abused? So what ultimately do we learn from Luke Acts about the early church evangelism? Well, um, and it's uh, is in its spreading phase. I actually think we're still in the spreading phase. Um, you know, Scott talked about the consummation phase there at the end. Um, every tribe, tongue, and nation. But we're still in the spreading phase. And, and that's why I think it's really important to see in Luke Acts where it's being used so often that it's very integrally linked to the Gentile mission. The, the proclamation of Adonai's victory and rule is over the entire world. And we are part of that. Mission is integral to the gathering of the church. If you look at the gatherings of believers in Acts, it always ends with sending out. It's always mission. So we're in the extension phase of proclamation. It's highly contextual. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Um, Woe to us who try to get that method that one size fits all in every situation. No, you can use it, but make sure that it is contextualized. Uh, and there's a whole lot of study on that, so I, I, I recognize that. So I'm not just like legalistically saying contextualized. You and Gelizamai is about something specific, however. It's contextual, but it's about something specific. And it's not really about me, um, which is always a good place to. Uh, and as we're reminding ourselves. So if you have any complaints about my presentation, there's my um, contact information. Uh, and I, I want to thank my comms director for putting this together. She put pictures in there in case you didn't know what I looked like, but there, there I am. But um, thank you. I don't know uh, if Scott and I had talked about fielding some questions as uh, I wrapped up. Is that something you guys want to do? Do we have time? Um, bosses? Yeah, we have time. We have time. Okay, then I'm done. You want to come up and, of course, JT, you want to run this? Thanks, guys. Today we're taking up one of the great adventures. Telling the good news together. So if you've got any questions whatsoever from either uh, of their presentations, this is a great time to do so. Let me encourage you. We're a, we're a small enough group in a small enough space here. Just, just stand up. We'll recognize you. Ask your question, and we'll see if we can stump them. How about that? <laughs> All right. Any questions? Anything that's percolating? Yeah. Uh, you had mentioned we're... Uh, Philip uses a different language of good news, and, and, and you said that kind of, I uh, the word you used, and you like the consistency there, so I think you used the word concern, concern, Well, so, yeah, okay, so, uh, yeah, well, just so we're clear, so Luke is using the language about what Philip is doing. Right? He's describing Philip's act of proclaiming the good news with euangelizomai as that term. I'm just saying that when, when you look at any English translation, I shouldn't say any, most English translation, it, in the numerous ways that it's translated in the English, the Greek to the English, they will kind of vary it. And I think they just do that stylistically. I like it just to be consistent so that when I'm reading, I know that the same concept is being uh, communicated. So it's nothing wrong with what Luke's doing or what Philip's doing. It's just more me and my, my temperament, my, uh, you know, my style to like to hear 
the same word being translated in a very similar way. Um, sometimes if you go with the same, it gets so wooden, it gets awkward. But um, what, what intrigued me was that they were, we had this word and it was almost like it was given new content. Was it the word of God? Was it the good news? Was it the gospel? Was it the kingdom of God? They, they would use different words to give it its content. They were proclaiming something and the question was, what was that thing? And so that, that was the question I was asking, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, at the end there, you said that the uh, word contextual and situational so that can be helpful and that can be abused. Mm. So give us some lead on what you think about the whole stuff. Well, I think, you know, that's why I, um, I think the next slide said. This is contextual, but it also means something, right? So, so we kind of have our, I don't know, our boundaries. So that, that there's, there's a good news to be proclaimed. And as we see the news in the speeches where we have content and acts, like they're not word for word the same every time, but they're very contextual. I think about um, Paul's, uh, you know, best example is Paul's uh, address to the um, people in Athens. So very different than Pentecost, right? He's talking about creator, he's quoting their poets, he's talking about, he doesn't even mention Jesus, uh, and he uses words that would make sense, and he doesn't quote scripture, right? But then all, all the speeches up to, all the mainly recorded speeches, the full-length ones, up to Acts 15, where it's a primary Jewish audience uh, that Luke is observing and, and recording for us historically, they do quote scripture, because that's relevant. There's no, you know, poets being quoted. So, so it's contextual, but the meaning stays rather consistent. That's why when you go from the Pentecost sermon of, I'm sorry, the Pentecost sermon and the uh, sermon in Acts three, both Peter's, and then you go to Acts thirteen, sermon of Paul. There's a lot of crossover because the good news does have consistent content, but it's given in different ways. So where Peter would link it a lot to Moses in Acts three, Paul links it a lot to David in Acts. 13 because of the context. If I could piggyback on that, I mean, I, I think a good way of saying it, it kind of, I think that how you just articulated too, is like Jesus, Jesus is the answer, but he's the answer to all the questions that the scriptures are raising for the New Testament authors, right? He's the answer to the question that the Old Testament is raising. So that could be contextualized. I could say something like, everyone has a God-shaped hole in their hearts, right? You can, you can say something like that. However, you have to, as an evangelist and as someone who is a recipient of the, uh, of the gospel, you will hopefully be growing in your knowledge of the depth of what that means in terms of how the Old Testament scriptures are articulating this. I mean, this is why Paul says when he's talking to the Romans, uh, which is a divided Jewish and Greek church, he's saying you have to recommend, recognize the Judeans have a head start. <laughs> they have the prophets. They have the law. They understand this better than you do, Gentiles. You need to honor them in that way. Okay? And yet, those Gentiles who came in because they heard Paul preaching, you know, Harry Pickett or whatever, you know, and they, 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 they heard this contextualized sermon. They're real Christians. They came into the gospel. And yet, we should be growing in our knowledge and love of Jesus as the answer that the biblical scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, raise. You guys stand here. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, man. Follow up. So, follow up. So, as I'm dating, 
So it would be abuse you referencing sort of being that exclusion like inflation, that exclusionary idea that you must it has to be Jewish or Christian. Is that is that what you think I'm trying to give you side of what we're yeah. So, so the question, I, I think, I, I, I think I missed a key, a key verb there, but I think, I think what you're asking is, so what you're saying is you have to become Jewish before you can become Christian. And I would say, well, that would, that could be understood. I, I could understand, I could say it that way in a, uh, in, in a very, uh, you know, a very general sense, you know, analogical sense of the word, maybe. Um, but no, we're not talking about like a Judaizing or anything like that, obviously. So what we'd be saying is, is that you need to understand, or what I'm saying is that Jesus as Christ, if you say, well, gospel is at the heart teaching Jesus Christ, well, then wh what is, who is the Christ? We only know the Christ through the Old Testament. That's how we know who Messiah is. Uh, Mashiach is. That's an Old Testament term. So, oh no, well, Jesus, okay, here, here's the key. Jesus is forgiveness of sins. All right, where are sins? Where did they come from? Right? Sins isn't just whatever I think of as a sin. Sin is a specific thing. And I think that's what we're getting at. You have to know the whole counsel of God. So, do you have to become Jewish in that sense? I am, I'm, I'm not comfortable with that language in that way. Right? But yes, do you need to become biblical in that sense? Do you have to become a Yahwist in that sense? Yes, absolutely. When I think uh, the reason, if I was just to kind of conjecture a little bit why it's coming up so much in Galatians is a lot of what you're, you're suggesting, because that's the same problem that, that uh, Luke is uh, addressing in Luke Acts, is that the, this extension is tied to the Gentiles, and that's not just a happenstance. That's not God tacking course suddenly, but this has been part of the, the prophecy, part of the plan all along. The blueprint of the Pentateuch was building the building that would include the Gentiles. That's why when James gives his judgment uh, at the end of his speech in Acts 15, he says this thing that sounds like it's a little bit from Isaiah, but it's actually just a prophetic principle where he says, and this is what happens from as of old. Uh, so he's saying the Gentiles are coming in and we're not making this up. This is what scripture says, and this is what the Holy Spirit has shown us. Um, and so, so that is part of the proclamation, and, and that's what Paul is addressing uh, there as well, obviously, quite a bit in Galatians. Hence why we had that problem, like, so is, is Galatians written before Acts 15 or, you know, or after, right? So we have that question, too. Do yeah. uh, we have time for two more questions? We've got them out there. If I could just, real quick, before grab, just one last because one thing I missed, and maybe this is actually standing also in your question, or behind your question, there is a notion that the Old Testament is for the Jewish people and the New Testament is for Christians, and that's there. But, and I know, okay, that, that's not, you, you do have to become Israel to receive the blessings of Israel. And you become Israel by being in the true vine. John 5, when Jesus, when Jesus, 15, when Jesus says that, he's saying, I am true Israel, right? And he's inviting us into Israel. So that's the branch grafted in. Just to kind of be clear that we're not saying that there's this and then there's that, and you got to be this if you want to be that. Yeah, Fred, right? Pretend uh, uh, I'm a hyper premium dispensationalist, <laughs> and I come to you, Scott, and, and say, show me in the Old Testament just one chapter. That, what? That, that uh, salvation, uh, that it's not an act of God, it's not, it's, you know, that, 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 that,
Oh, Jesus. Well, okay, uh, fill the earth and subdue it. And we start, it's the, whole, the whole world is involved. Of course, there's no distinction there that now. Uh, Abraham becoming the father of, um, I mean, I think Genesis 12, I think this would probably be the best place to go first. It's always been for the families. Uh, every provision for sojourners, that they're treated totally and completely as brothers. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, those would be good starting points. As you get, as you get into the prophets, actually, uh, and, and the Psalter, it's the, the all flesh seeing it together, all of the nations being, you know, that's Isaiah 40. Um, I would say, actually, once you start reading the Old Testament attuned to this, you, you won't be able to ignore the Gentiles. They're all over the place. The assumption is that they'll be brought in. Ruth and Rahab uh, being grafted in, not just into Israel, but into the Messianic line. So I think all of those, I mean, yes, for one chapter, so Genesis 12 will be my one chapter. All the families of the earth will be blessed. One final, yes. Final question here, Dave. Um, I'm interested in hearing from both of you on this. Aaron, you mentioned how in Luke Acts there's a consistent pairing of preaching with ordinary means, Christian baptism, Christian prayer. What would the two of you suggest it should look like in our world today in light of Old and New Testaments to preach the gospel uh, to the world uh, as paired with Ordinary means. Uh, you mentioned here in your church equipping people to do ordinary means from ministry. Um, you talk about what that means, what that looks like, how we do evangelism in a way that's not abstracted from the church mm-hmm. as institutional organism, but how we compare those without. Well, I mean, uh, the literal ways are actually having in worship the ordinary means. Um, so having those in worship and, and making sure that the drama of the liturgy uh, points to them in, in the, the appropriate uh, ways. And um, uh, and for me, I mean, I really believe that Scripture needs to be um, preached Lectio Continua, uh, that you need to just go through it and uh, say what it says. I. I, I'm sorry, don't throw a shoe again. I, I have a little bit of an aversion to topical sermons because I I just uh, feel like God wisely put it in an order already um, and that it's going to address topics that we need to hear uh, and that we need to explain uh, the Lord's table and make sure, uh, for instance, we don't have children coming and plucking bread out of there that have not been baptized yet. And of course, those are weird and awkward conversations to have, but if you know your congregation well, uh, and your your ruling elders are shepherding, um, which of course takes time. I'm just saying this is kind of more just objective data because this has taken us four years to get to this point. And I had uh, you know work done before I got there, right? But we, we have pulled families inside and say it's because we love you and we love that your kids want to take part in the table that we want them to be into the people of God. Of course, um, and giving a proper understanding of what baptism is. Really, t- I'm mean, talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's do that a little more. Often. I mean, the Holy Spirit is ministering to Christ, ministering Christ to us and praying um, along with that. So I would just start there. Then I would start uh, just more in application, dignifying everybody's vocation and work and that they have a role in making sure you're not burning people out with committees and projects and programs and things like that. Like I have a pretty steady on policy with our elders at church that we need to watch that people are being 
discipled in one way and serving in one way. If they're doing less, we can talk to them. If they're doing more, we certainly need to talk to them because uh, we don't want church to overtake the ministry of family and of community. So, Just, just to add in terms of evangelism, I do think we should see the church as uh, a part of the evangelistic method, getting people into the church, seeing the community of of believers. We, we forget this. I, mean, I don't know about you all, but I forget this. I, I live in the church. I'm, I teach a seminary. I'm surrounded by Christians, and I know all of our flaws, and I sometimes forget how unique my experience is to be in a multi-generational, multi-ethnic worshiping community in today's United States. Like, this is to, to come in and have close friends of different generations who I'm with every week and they know my kids. That's a wonderful thing. Invite people in. I mean, I know that's, that's kind of ancillary to means of grace, I know, but that idea of bringing people in to the church and having your church be a place where people are welcomed um, is remarkable. And I, I would add, I, I was at a church, I worked at a church in Raleigh where we really tried to, as you said, kind of do the grand experiment. And we really organized every ministry. You had to answer the question, how is this augmenting and serving the means of grace? And so even our mercy ministry was to prepare us to participate, participate righteously in an Isaiah 58 way in the Lord's Supper on Sunday. Okay, I mean, Isaiah 58 says you're fasting, but you're not caring for the poor. So your fast is a forced fast on the poor. You're fasting judgment on yourself. Right? You know, I don't want to drink judgment on myself. I don't want my congregation to be tempted to come to the Lord's Supper inappropriately. So I want to make sure that we're loving our neighbor. Right? So, you know, that kind of thinking through your ministries and how do they augment and serve the means of grace, I think is a, is a very important uh, idea and should be practiced. Friends, evangelism in the Old and New Testament. Aaron Scott, thank you very much. We're going to take a quick five-minute break maximum. Then we're going to be back here with Scott Seeley. Scott's going to take us about 15, 1600 years into the future. And we're going to look together at the, the Scottish church and the Irish church in particular there. So come on back.